Hello, and welcome to the Canadian Literature Centre's Brown Bag Lunch reading series, the COVID edition. The Canadian Literature Centre is based at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. Known to many as Amiskwichi Wiskagan, Edmonton is located on Treaty 6 territory and the Métis Nation of Alberta District 4. Like so many other live readings this year, the CLC's Brown Bag Lunch reading series has been affected by COVID-19. Instead of our monthly program hosting writers from across Canada at the University of Alberta, we're pleased to offer you our 2020-21 series in podcast form, delivered right to your living room or kitchen. We hope that you enjoy this chance to connect with authors from across the country. Today's featured author is Jen Sukfong Lee, a prolific and celebrated writer, editor, teacher, and radio personality from Vancouver. Lee has worked in a wide array of genres, including the literary crime novel, YA fiction, film criticism, and a forthcoming collection of poetry, of which we get a sneak preview here. She is best known for her novels, The End of the East, A Story of the Chinese Canadian Community in Vancouver, The Better Mother, Shelter, and The Conjoined. Her novels have been praised for their emotional power and page-turning brilliance, and nominated for several prestigious awards. Her crime novel, The Conjoined, has been described as a complex, refreshing, and relevant departure from the expectations of genre. Many listeners will also know Lee as a popular CBC radio personality. She's a regular contributor on the next chapter and definitely not the opera, and a frequent co-host for the Studio One book club. Lee reads to us and reflects on writing and reading during the pandemic from Vancouver. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Canadian Literature Center's Brown Bag Lunch Reading Series, which is now a podcast. <laughs> How exciting that I get to do a podcast. That's a joke, because I already do a podcast. Um, hello, everybody. My name is Jen Sukfong Lee, and you may know my work uh, from my three novels, The End of East, The Better Mother, and The Conjoined. Um, these are what I call my Chinatown trilogy. All three are set in Vancouver's Chinatown, uh, which in many ways could be the Chinatown in any major city across the world. If there's anything I've learned from my uh, travels over these years is that um, pretty much every major city's Chinatown um, shares very many characteristics, which I love. I do love how consistent the Chinese diaspora can be. Um, sometimes people ask me why um, I decided to set uh, most of my fiction in Chinatown. Um, it was always really important for me to ground my novels in that setting, which is where uh, my family has its origins, um, and it's sort of where I feel most at home writing about. Chinatown in Vancouver is also part of the larger neighborhood called the Downtown East Side, commonly referred to as the poorest postal code in Canada, um, where there is lots of poverty, uh, lots of people living there um, with addictions and uh, homelessness issues. Um, and it's been really important to me to shine a light on those uh, neighborhoods and those communities um, because they are very dear to my heart in a really personal way. But also sort of in a fictional sense, this collision of different communities is what I really love writing about when um, a number of different groups of people come together um, and the intersections that are created. And I always really uh, enjoy writing through and into those intersections. 
Um, I'm going to be reading uh, a few things for you, but sort of the first thing I'm going to read um, is from my most recent novel, The Conjoined, uh, which came out in 2016. And um, it's it's traveled far and done some things, which I'm really grateful for. Uh, people ask me sometimes how I came up with the concept for The Conjoined. And I will tell you what happened is that I was reading a news story many years ago, probably 20 years ago now, about a woman who had died. And as her family was cleaning out her house, uh, they found the bodies of two foster sisters in her deep chest freezers. Um, these were girls that she had fostered many years earlier who had actually gone missing. And she had moved several times in those years and had taken the freezers and thusly the bodies with her. Now, I would say a normal person, meaning someone who's not me, uh, would read this story and think, oh my God, that's so awful, and sort of move on with their day. I read the news story and thought, well, I need to write a novel about this, because that's where my brain goes. Uh, I do joke that the one thing that ties all of my books together isn't what people expect, which is that, which is something like, you know, the Chinese Canadian experience or immigration or the downtown east side. Really, the one thing that ties all my books together is the concept of bad mothers or what we think are bad mothers uh, and the things that mothers we don't expect, um, the things that they do that we would not expect. Um, in fairness, though, like really, if you get down to it, I had also worked in social services for years as a day job um, in my 20s. And I had been flirting with the idea of writing about social work for a really, really long time. It was something that um, I had been thinking about, but it took me, you know, seven, six or seven years after I had left that field to really get down to it. Um, one of the things that had always struck me about social work, and particularly with um, child protection, is that the social workers are almost entirely white women, um, as well, they were definitely when I was working in that field. And I had always wondered how they navigate culture, because when they're in there, you know, protecting children, trying to keep families together, uh, trying to help families, they're working with families from all different kinds of communities. So I often wondered about the culture um, aspect to it and how you navigate the different parenting styles of people who um, view the world quite differently. The girls in the conjoined, the foster sisters, are Chinese Canadian. Um, and they come from an immigrant family who can never get ahead because of barriers of language or class or education. Um, there's something really special to me about uh, subverting the sort of model minority myth that is often attached to Chinese Canadians um, and which can seem really uh, sort of oppressive. Um, and it often, it's a, it's a double-edged sword because Chinese Canadians are often seen as the model minority um, by the mainstream until something like COVID happens and then we're not model minority anymore. We're um, unwanted and othered again. Um, so exploring sort of those ideas of how uh, the othering of Chinese Canadians has been really important to me, which is uh, part of the reason I made my two girls in the conjoined Chinese Canadian. Um, so let's start with the conjoined. Um, I'm going to read from, from the very beginning. Jessica stood at the kitchen window, her arms hanging at her sides, hands in pink rubber gloves. The backyard was a mess, as it had always been while her mother was alive. On the side, an unchecked patch of rhubarb was beginning to push up against a ragged camellia bush. At the back, the old bamboo stakes were still stuck in the ground, dried remnants of pea tendrils and tomato leaves partially tied with twine. 
Needles from the Douglas fir, taller than any other tree on the block, with a herd of starlings that never stopped complaining, lay like a pilly brown sweater over the lawn. But the cacophony hinted at other, more ordered things. The minted pea soup her mother would make every spring, the giant peonies bunched in milk bottles on the dining room table, the smell of lavender as it hung upside down from the mudroom ceiling, drying. The neighbors might have tidy rows of heather and rhododendrons, hardy and low-maintenance plants that could stand withstand the stormy north shore, but it had been Donna who grew her own pumpkins for pie. It had been Donna they turned to for plum jam, and it had been Donna who came to their doors when a husband was dying or a cat had to be found. She didn't need to be invited. She just knew. Jessica pushed the hair off her forehead, leaving a line of soapy water on her blonde eyebrows. Behind her, the cupboard doors were open. Bottles of nut oils and plastic containers filled with flax seeds and kamut lined every shelf in the pantry. For the past month, while her mother was dying in a cancer ward at the hospital, her father had lived on hamburger helper, raw carrots, and steak burritos from Taco Del Mar. That morning, as Jessica stared at the carefully labeled rows of carob chips and bee pollen, Jerry put his wide hand on her shoulder and said, I'm not going to miss this shit. Jessica smiled briefly. Are you saying you don't want to keep it? What would I do with it? Mix it with some gin and call it a martini? That would be a terrible waste of perfectly good alcohol. Jerry snorted. That's my girl. When she was done, there was almost no trace of her mother in the kitchen, only her set of handmade clay dishes glazed blue and brown, and the cross stitch she had hung above the door that said, God grant me the patience to accept that which I cannot change. Jessica packed the recipe binders into a box to take to her apartment just off Commercial Drive. She doubted she would ever make the slow-cooked pulled tofu, but she knew that as soon as she opened the covers, the smells of her mother's cooking, muddy and sticky laced with cumin and soy, would cloud up around her, and she would hear Donna's voice telling her how to gently knead a ball of oat dough so the bread wouldn't turn out stiff and heavy. Just fold and pivot, Miss Jess. No need to punch it like it's an ex-boyfriend. And then she would hear her laugh, that verging on manly chuckle that jiggled her belly and shook the gray-blonde curls that fell around her shoulders riotous. Donna might have dropped stray threads and beads from her clothes while she clomped through mulch and mud, but her touch was always light, just a fingertip or the brush of her knuckles across her daughter's forehead when she was checking for a fever. Jessica walked by the big back window and saw her reflection, ghostly against the view of the mountain. She had never looked like her mother. As a teenager, Jessica had grown thin, while Donna added to her already substantial body. And her eyes were dark amber like Jerry's, or a cat's. But she had her mother's untamable hair, which Jessica wrangled into submission with a flat iron three times a week. Now, because of all the sweat accumulating on her scalp, she could see the curls forming around her ears, a halo of slowly twisting ringlets. She ran her hand over the top of her head, but this only made it fuzzy, like a baby's. Time to give up, she thought. She cared about being pretty most days, but at this very moment, swathed in her mother's hand-sewn apron, she really couldn't give a shit. Jessica rummaged through the hall closet, looking for a tape gun. She could hear her father in the basement singing King of the Road as he sorted through Donna's canning supplies. Jessica knew they had to empty out the spare bedroom, too, the one the foster kids used to sleep in. She could barely remember any of their names and wondered if her mother had kept the photographs she took of them. Of course she did, Jessica muttered. She kept every last fucking thing. There had been no kids in the last ten years, but Jessica was sure the twin beds were still set up and the small dresser was still empty, waiting for the few pieces of clothing the kids brought with them. 
When Jessica told her fellow social workers at the office what her mother used to do, accepting a new child every few weeks, holding them when they had nightmares, never scolding when they wet the beds, they listened intently and held their hands to their chests. She must have been a saint, said Parminder. All my parents ever did was prevent me from killing my brother. Hmm. No, not a saint, Jessica had replied, but close. One night, when Jessica was six, she had woken up from a nightmare, screaming and pulling at the damp sheets knotted around her legs. Donna came in, fixed the blankets, and sat with her, humming a song that was tuneless and wordless, but still washed over Jessica like warm water. She had said into her mother's belly, I want you with me always. Donna laughed and then sighed. Well, if I were with you all the time, you'd get pretty sick of me. No, I wouldn't, for real. Mm, sure you would. When I was a little girl, I always wanted to be somewhere else, someone far, far away from home and Granny Beth, but then Donna paused and tucked a curl behind Jessica's ear. Granny never wanted me to stick around anyway. Jessica wasn't sure what her mother had meant when she said that, but as she grew older, she began to see that Granny Beth, unlike other grandmothers she knew, never came to birthday parties or brought her tree ornaments at Christmas. Instead, they drove to Lions Bay to see her once a year in the summer in her house on the cliff. Donna had told Jessica every time that she was never to step outside the sliding glass door onto the rain-slicked rocks beyond the living room. The wrought iron fence was solid enough, but when the wind blew from the open sea to the west, everything man-made seemed to shrink, to lose solidity against the sharp-edged air. Granny Beth gave them tea and peak creams, and never asked why Jerry didn't come, just as Jessica never asked about her dead grandfather. Once, Jessica said Jerry was working, and Granny Beth stared and said, Is that what he calls it? Work? And Jessica stopped talking. Donna filled the air with stories that withered in the space between them until the hour was up. When they drove away, Donna turned on the car radio as loud as she could. Jessica was glad for the noise. Her mother was no saint, but her grandmother was even less so. Donna had to fill in the gaps somehow. No wonder you're a social worker, Parminder had continued. You must have felt it was your destiny. Jessica had nodded, but she hadn't been sure if that's what it was. Now, as she taped box after box shut, she thought there just wasn't anything else she was equipped to do. Of course, she had to try to help kids. Of course, she had wanted her mother to be proud. Of course, it hadn't turned out like she'd expected. She had quit child protection after nine months. At the time, she had said to her mother, There has to be a better way than just walking into a house, staying for an hour, and taking kids away. The families need support, not upheaval. Donna had agreed, nodding her head and patting Jessica's hand. But then Jessica spent the next six years going from one support agency to another, hoping every time she started a new job that there would be enough funding and time and will. But after a few months, the agency would miss a small detail, or a child wouldn't tell her everything, or she would forget that she was supposed to call and remind a mother about a parenting seminar that evening. And those tiny things would start an inescapable chain that ended up with one more child in foster care and angry parents who couldn't trust a social worker ever again. They talked in meetings about best practices and leaving no child behind, but small changes in messaging or team building resulted in no change at all for the families reeling from intervention. Children were neglected, children were abused. Once in a while, the social workers could help. Most of the time, they couldn't. Sometimes, they made it worse. The number of files she couldn't satisfactorily close grew. It didn't matter how many times she moved them, the pile sat top-heavy and teetering in her head. She could never shake them and she was scared of failing, always failing. Five years before, Jessica had taken a job in the adoption department, planning public outreach so that people would know there were children available for adoption right here and not just in China or Guatemala or Haiti. 
On paper, it was a noble pursuit, and Jessica almost believed she was making a difference. But every time she put together binders of available children, printing off their most flattering photos and writing descriptions that weren't lies but certainly weren't the truth, she felt like a child peddler, like she worked in a giant box store selling bright, shiny kids to families who couldn't possibly have any idea how hard it was going to be. Alexis is a bright and inquisitive seven-year-old, she wrote. She loves cats and hopes to be a dancer one day. Because of a difficult early childhood, Alexis finds trusting new people a challenge and is learning to appropriately express her feelings. She is best suited to a family where she will be the only or youngest child and where her caregivers have a basic understanding of attachment issues. The parents came back to their social workers in tears. The children weren't what they had expected. They didn't know if they could survive this. They needed help. And the social workers gave them books, pointed them to the very same support agencies Jessica used to work for, and promised to call in a week. The children stayed, or they went back into care. Sometimes they went to mental health units, or worse, the youth detention center. Nothing was different. Even her cubicle stayed the same. Beige, nubby fake walls, a rubber plant. When she was home, Trevor was almost always on the couch, writing in his journal and sniffling. I couldn't get Gary a room, he'd said last week, and we found him this morning in a box off Carroll Street with blood all over his face. He said some shitheads from the suburbs kicked him in the head. Jessica had held his hand while he talked. And you know what? Next week, it'll just be some other poor homeless guy with the same story. It's never enough, Jess. And it wasn't. Trevor could try to find housing for every one of his downtown Eastside clients, but there was nowhere for them to go. Just condo buildings with recessed lighting. Row houses stuffed full of quaint wooden details and wireless technology. Nothing a welfare or disability check could possibly pay for. Nothing changed, except there was now silence where her mother's wobbly alto should have been. Jessica told, called down the stairs. Dad, do you need some help? No, I'm fine. I'm just getting ready to deal with the freezers. What kind of meat do you think I'll find in there? Well, I'm afraid to guess. Mm, me too. Do you want something to drink? I'm going to make some tea. His voice rose up the stairs. I could use some water, thanks. As Jessica walked back into the kitchen, she could hear the hinges squeaking on the freezer doors and the sounds of her father pawing through the stacks of resealable plastic bags. She shook a cookie from his bag onto a plate and headed downstairs, glass in her other hand. As she reached the concrete floor, her father staggered out of the storage room, face gray and bloodless. Dad? Are you all right? Dad? He leaned over the stair railing, hands at his mouth, as if he was afraid he might be sick, or that words he hadn't planned would spill out all over the steps. Dad, seriously, you're scaring me. He looked up at her, his eyes filmy and wet. The freezer, he whispered. There's something. Jessica set the plate and glass on the floor and marched into the storage room. You should have just said so. I'll take care of it. You drink that water. She smiled. I have an iron stomach. Jess, you shouldn't look. Jess, just stay here for a minute so I can tell you, Jess. But she didn't stop. She walked around the central work table, past the utility shelving, and up to the two big chest freezers against the back wall. One of them was open, light from the door triangulating up toward the ceiling. At first, she saw nothing but ice crystals and piles of freezer bags labeled in her mother's slanted handwriting. But as she looked closer, she could see where her father had dug down to the bottom. The freezer was just over waist high, so Jessica leaned in, her hair brushing the ice on the side. I guess we have to defrost this fucking thing too, she said, sighing. There was a black garbage bag dotted with frost, one corner loose. Her father must have pulled it back to see what was inside. Jessica tucked at it some more, tugged at it some more, until the warmth from her hand melted some of the ice, weighing it down. She stared. What kind of weird, wild game is this? 
As soon as the question informed itself in her mind, she knew the answer. It wasn't an animal. It was a small human foot. Five toes, a heel, frozen. The scream that filled the basement was hers, but if she had heard it in a movie, she would have sworn it was a raccoon or a dying skunk. Fuck, 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 she said as she backed toward the stairs. And then, because it was the first question that filled her mouth, Mom, what did you do? So that was the conjoined, the beginning. And of course, everybody wants to find out what happened to those frozen bodies. <laughs> you have to read it to find out. Um, so some people don't know this about me, but I also write in a few other genres. Um, I write children's fiction and nonfiction, uh, cultural criticism, memoir, and poetry. Um, I'm a firm believer in diversifying your, uh, your portfolio for maximum efficiency. <laughs> It's like I'm a financial advisor. Um, my very first poetry collection, The Shadow List, is forthcoming next spring. It's kind of odd for me to be talking about very first anything because I've been around for a while. Um, so a story that I very rarely tell, but when I started uh, my creative writing MFA 22 years ago, um, I actually dropped out of my MFA. I did not finish it, so I am a master of fine arts um, dropout. Um during that time when I was supposed to be studying for this for this degree, I was actually writing a poetry collection for my thesis. Um, back then, this is the late 90s, creative writing programs were not known for being very inclusive or nurturing, um, particularly for racialized writers, particularly for racialized writers who also happen to be women or also happen to be queer or non-binary. Um, so when I left, I stopped writing poetry altogether, and I actually didn't write a poem. Not, well, I mean, I wrote some lines that were terrible, but I didn't actually write a poem again for 15 years. There was something about that experience that made me uh, not want to write them again. Um, it really wasn't until I was a bit fatigued um, from writing three novels in a row that I turned back to poetry. So here we are. Um, poetry, is, uh, poetry is something that, that is easier to dip in and out of um, without being completely immersed in world building, which is what novels are. So my son was also small, so it was easier for me to sort of go back and forth into all these poems, and then they grew into a collection. Um, I am going to actually read you some poems from The Shadow List, which I'm actually very excited to do. I don't actually read these very often because the book is coming out spring 2021 um hopefully after all this covid business is done um i used to jokingly call these my sad wifey poems <laughs> because many of them were written um sort of in the aftermath of my separation and divorce um you know kind of like my eat pray love poetry collection if there is such a thing um is that but you know this is true for all of my writing um is that even if the genesis or the premise or the idea is something really personal. As I revise and shape and rewrite, the poems become much less an artifact of my life and more a creative project that I'm working on. And there's a distance um, that's achieved there, uh, which is actually a really effective way of like, you know, counseling yourself if you don't want to pay for therapy. <laughs> um, I realized some time ago that that these were poems about more generally the unspoken desires of women of how feminism in so many ways has changed uh, live, the lives for us in the wider world, but often feminism hasn't changed all that much in our intimate relationships. And so the shadow list was born. Um, so I'm actually going to read three poems and this won't take too long. Um, the first poem I'm going to read is called 
five breakups with the same man. You sent him a very long text, the kind you have to tap twice to read. He didn't respond. It was Christmas. During sex, he said he loved you. You pretended not to hear him, went home, and he didn't call for six months. He met you at a bar. You had to call him the next day, standing in the lobby of your friend's apartment building in a coat that still carried his cologne, and say you couldn't see him again, but you did three weeks later. He called. He said he could be a stepfather to your son, and your tears were vicious and hot, but still. You said no, and he said he would walk away. In an email, he asked for a poem you had written about him. You sent it. He didn't write back. What did you expect? Um, so I don't know how many of you are dog lovers. I assume many because dogs are the best. I have a dog currently named Rosie, a little rescue from Mexico. Um, but my dog before that was named Molly and she was a big shepherdy rescue also. And um, I got her in my 20s and she died, uh, I guess it was three years ago now. Um, and it was one of those things where uh, I really felt like I'd lost a partner. Uh, there was a lot of grief. Molly was um, not really my dog. She was more of my life partner. Uh, I definitely was not the boss. It was more of a democratic arrangement with Molly and me. Um, anyway, I did write a poem for her after she died. And um, I don't know how many uh, writers write about their past pets, but I think a lot of us do. Um, anyway, so this poem is called Dog Years. She snored in the night when you were alone together, lying on her back, four paws in the air. It was always a half whinny, and you thought she might have been dreaming about racing against a horse on cold sand. She loved the beach in winter. She loved the wind, sharp salt water needling her fur, and it only made her run faster. She loved the kelp bulbs that popped in her mouth. All that sand on the pads of her feet, perfect for racing dream horses or pretend day horses, or even the seagulls that dipped so low. You haven't given away her bed or her food, or looked through her bin of abandoned bones. The brown streak she smeared on the north wall of your stairwell is still there, two feet high. You sniffed it today, and it smelled like rain-soaked fur, like the clumps of mud you used to wipe from her belly. But there was no judging her speed. She ran as fast as she could, or she didn't run at all. She was fast, or she was still, and nothing in between. Soon didn't exist. It was, and is, only now. Um, so the last poem I'm going to read for you is actually the last poem in the collection. Um, and everything I write about in this poem actually happened. Um, if anyone is wondering, because maybe you would like to know this, um, everything that happened here happened to me when I went to Kamloops, uh, in the interior of BC to do an event at the public library there. And one of the librarians there, um, is a palm reader. So um, all of this actually occurred, and the actual dialogue in here, I think, is very close to being word for not word, if not exactly. But anyway, uh, this poem is called Stigmata. You have the mark of a witch. Turn your palms up, look closely at the middle. There, a star, a stigmata from a past life when you were thrown into a winter-cold river, left to sink if you were merely human, dragged out and hung for evil if you floated. The rapids were vicious, yet in your fists were sprigs of rosemary that you tore from the bush as the men carried you out of your cottage and through the garden. For memory, you thought, so they will not forget their shame. As you drowned, the jagged, woody ends pierced the skin on your palms, and you saw the blood swirl upward to the surface. 
white swells, red wisps that spun like baby hair, and then were gone. You listen to the woman who claims she has the sight. She asks, are you a conjurer? And you say to your surprise, yes. There were the imagined men you wrote into poems who then became real. There was the restlessness you wrote into your novel, and when your marriage died, you wondered what you had called into being. There is your father, your grandfather, and especially your grandmother. Once, well past midnight, you opened your eyes and the neighbor's porch light spilled over the edge of the bed. It was here your grandmother sat, perched like a gargoyle slowly coming to life. By then, she'd been dead for 25 years. She said, they never knew me. They thought I was cruel. Silent, you watched her cry, transparent tears. You wondered if you should touch her, but you knew that your hand would open and close and grasp nothing at all. In the morning, you couldn't remember how she had left. Maybe she walked, maybe she faded away, maybe she kissed your forehead before flying out the window, nimble and weightless. Cradling your hands in her lap, the seer asks another question. Do you get everything you want? You hesitate. No, but yes. She looks at your face, eyes following the lines of your mouth set hard in your jaw. Did he hurt you? Does he scare you? And you don't bother answering because you both already know. He hurt you many times, on purpose and by accident. The intent never mattered. You resolve to write a poem that wishes him away, a place where the desert grows truncated pine trees, bushes that are gray-green against the dust rising every time a car passes on the two-lane highway. He'd like it there. As far as the eye can see, he will be the tallest one. In the cramped living room, her three-year-old dancing to a cartoon on the television behind you, she traces your lifeline with her fingernail. So many slashes, here and here. She takes a sip of water and then, were you a child? What happened? Before you can reply, she whispers, oh, I'm so sorry. She turns your hand to the side. There is another marriage in your future, she smiles. This time you'll be happy. He's been waiting for you. Someone is smoking weed in an upstairs bedroom and you blink against the smell. Well, you say, where can I find this man? She passes you a slice of apple taken from a plastic container shaped like a bunny's head and laughs. You're the witch. You tell me. Okay, so now we have some questions um, that were sent to me and I'm going to try to answer them best as I can. So the first question is, what has this time been like for you as a writer? What has kept you going? What spaces or activities have been meaningful to you? Hmm. <laughs> I during this time, and I it, it, it's uh, it's it's odd, but I have been oddly productive uh, in terms of writing. So I actually started writing a new novel, which um, is no joke because I've been really scared to start a new novel. Novels take a lot of work; they take up a lot of headspace. Um, I can't write a novel and write other things um, because they are so immersive and have so many components to them. Um, so starting a new novel is a real commitment. So this is what the pandemic has done to me. Um, I've also finished up some other projects that were sort of on the go, um, including a memoir and the poetry collection. Um, and I've been editing um, for my other job as a, as a uh, editor for um, Wool Second Win and Buck Rider Books. Um, the thing about writing and this kind of work is that writing has always been an escape from the realities of my life. <laughs> always. You can look at my teenage diaries if you want to see evidence of this. I'm definitely not lying. Um, and it has remained, you know, a escape for me during the pandemic. I've spent a lot of time with my son. Um, 
because he's been home and our um, social circle is, well, tiny. Um, and I've been, you know, when all of this started and you were just doing anything you could to cope. And like a lot of parents, probably most parents, I was kind of letting my son do whatever he wanted just so that we could get through a day. Um, and then as time wore on, I could see that this kind of, you know, screen time that he was getting and alone time he was getting was not helping us connect to each other. So when he's home with me, he started school again because it's September, but we'll see how uh, long the schools stay open. Uh, when I'm with him these days, I'm trying really hard to be present with him as much as I can, um, even if that means we're talking about things I really don't care about, like Sonic the Hedgehog or Beyblades or like some random YouTuber who plays Roblox and, <laughs> and post screamy videos on the internet. Um, and also the other thing that has helped us a tremendous amount is walking the dog. Um, the dog needs to be walked, so we need to go out and that really helps. Um, and these are sort of the things that have kept my spirits up. Um, I also highly recommend getting takeout from your favorite local restaurants because uh, it helps them, but also helped me. I mean, I got really tired of cooking every single meal and getting that takeout has really made things better. Small, small things, small mercies. Um, our second question is, what role is art playing for you and your communities these days? Well, as I said before, so like art, writing, culture, particularly pop culture, uh, these are my comfort foods, if you wanted to call them that. And I have been reading, I mean, not a lot, only because I'm not like the fastest reader in the world. It takes me time. Um, but I've been reading some really great novels and really trying to be really purposeful about the things that I choose to read for fun. I do a lot of reading for work. So reading that I do for fun is precious time. Um, so two novels that I really, really loved is um, How Much of These Hills is Gold by C. Pam Zhang, which I believe was long listed for the Man Booker Prize. And also Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu, um, both newish uh, novels. And I found that, you know, during COVID, um, anti-Asian racism definitely peaking in a way that I have not seen in my lifetime. And turning to the words and art of the Chinese diaspora, people who are also writers, um, has meant a lot to me personally, um, because I feel like we're, you know, on a team or in a community in some way. Um I mentioned this earlier, but being Chinese, you know, uh, is its own particular kind of otherness. You know, we are acceptable to, you know, the majority as long as we follow the rules. But then as soon as something goes wrong, something like COVID, we aren't acceptable any longer. We're still those, um, you know, carriers of disease and, you know, dirty, scary people who like, I don't know, own gambling dens and smoke opium. Um, so our humanity in the eyes of others is always conditional. So reading these books by other uh, Chinese authors has made me feel definitely less scared and less alone. Um, they're tackling really tough subjects of otherness and racism and expectations and the weights that we carry um, and the weights that the diaspora carries from one place to the other. Chinese people really do migrate a lot. So these are all really sort of particular topics and, and themes that um, nobody else, I feel, really gets in the way that we do. Um, so it matters to me to read this because the community matters and they always matter and our humanity shouldn't be conditional. So that's that. Um, if you had to recommend one book or story or poem to read right now, what would it be and why? Only one. Come on now. How am I going to choose only one? Um, for this moment, and it's like, this is a genuinely very like personal thing for me, but it's a book that I really believe in and think has a lot for everybody. 
um, is In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. It's not brand brand new. I think it's a couple years old now, maybe a year old. But it really has been the most transformative book for me that I've read in the last year. Um, it's basically a memoir of um, an abusive relationship. And Carmen Maria Machado really plays with form, especially with elements of like spec fiction and like choose your own adventure books. There's a sense of playfulness with the um, structure of it, um, which is remarkable because the actual topic is pretty heavy. Um, what I think is so perfect about this book for this moment is that the book can go to some very dark places. And even in the middle of all that trauma and all that pain and all that hurt, um, I think the author, the narrator, who is Carmen Maria Machado, she there's a distinct feeling that she knows there is an ending. There is a spot where the story ends and something beautiful and better begins, that the trauma and the pain and the hurt will not last forever. Like that old cliche, this too shall pass. I know for me and probably for lots of other people, it's really hard to see in this moment in time with COVID um, and the exposure of inequities in our systems and all of that systemic racism, it's really hard for us to see in the middle of this tornado that things can get better and that the things that are unfair or on the wrong side of history will end. But they do end and they will end and something better will take its place. If, the, if history has taught us anything, um, that is true. So in the dream house by Carmen Maria Machado. Highly recommend. Um, I think that's it. I don't know how many minutes I've talked, but I feel like it's a lot. Thank you everyone for listening to my voice and listening to my words, uh, wherever you are, whoever you are. Um, thanks for spending some time with me and I wish you all the health and all the joy and everything else that you need or want and take care of yourselves. Bye. You've been listening to Jen Sukfang Lee, reading and speaking to us from Vancouver. This has been an episode of the Canadian Literature Centre's Brown Bag Lunch podcast reading series, produced by Sarah Krotz, Austin Lee, and Matthew Cormier, edited by Claire Peters. Music composed and performed by Bruce Ziff. The CLC's programming is made possible by generous financial support from Dr. Eric Schloss and from the Faculty of Arts at the University of Alberta. New episodes of the 2020-21 Brown Bag Lunch podcast reading series will be posted monthly on the Canadian Literature Centre's website. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.